He's a very, very accomplished um, anthropologist and ethnographer, and it's just wonderful to be able to introduce him to you now. Good. Thank you very much. And keep an eye on my time. So good evening and thanks very much for coming along to the Martial Arts Studies Conference and uh, to my talk. Um, and today I'm going to talk about uh, efficacy and entertainment in martial arts studies, uh, an anthropological perspective. Uh, I am an anthropologist, so um, I guess that's why it has to be an anthropological perspective. So <coughs> I, for me, I was... For my purposes, I, I like to talk about martial anthropology, and really it's just anthropology with the, with the martial arts in, I guess, uh, to, to have a play on words with uh, Tim Ingold, which would be uh, anthropology is uh, philosophy with the people in. Um, yeah, me and Ingold have, uh, I, I have some uh, issues with his work. I think he's the most brilliant uh, anthropologist, contemporary anthropologist who's writing, um, and the most engaged as well. But uh, I just don't agree with some of his work, and I, I, especially the work on agency and stuff. And I'm going to talk a bit about that as we go along. But first, I want to outline some of this sort of journey into a martial anthropology, which is also a martial arts studies. It can be more, th more than one thing simultaneously. And my influence was mostly from Philip Cirilli, who was my external examiner for my PhD, which I did at uh, the National University of Singapore, turning down a place at the London School of Economics to go there. Because I wanted to be in the field, I wanted to carry on learning Silat, uh, I wanted to learn Malay language, and I ended up living there for nine years. And uh, uh, it was Philip's idea of this performance ethnography, which is where you learn a martial art, you join in and learn a martial art from, from the ground up, and then you write about that. That's what I wanted to do. And I read his, uh, his When the Body Becomes All Eyes. Uh, I read the, the whole book, and I, I actually was quite obsessive with that book at the outset of my PhD, because I went through every single reference to every chapter and every article and read everything. So that was how I set up my uh, study on uh, Silat, which is the Malay martial art. And this was kind of before uh, Louis Waquant had, well, Louis Waquant had published his uh, work on carnal sociology and carnal ethnography. And I, I didn't really become familiar with his work until uh, uh, down the road a bit, actually, after martial arts studies, uh, the martial arts as embodied knowledge, which we didn't want to call it that. That was the publishers who titled it that. But um, the martial arts as embodied knowledge um, had already kind of been set up and written by the time I'd come across and was really starting to read uh, Waquant's work. So uh, I pay a bit more attention to that now, I guess. Um, but uh, this uh, thing, martial arts studies, uh, really is uh, John takes the credit for writing about martial arts studies, really. Uh, I was a PhD student, and they, it, under Brian Turner, who gave me a contract for my book, uh, Shadows of the Prophet, and uh, they put me under John to sort of learn the ropes of how to publish. Uh, I ended up doing more of the work than he did, so that's why my name went on there first. But um, it was him that pressed for this uh, martial arts studies. For me, I was quite content with martial anthropology. But uh, I've kind of, like, moved on, you know, sort of after a decade, you... You pick up other stuff, and I guess I've relaxed to, to some extent about, especially about disciplinary boundaries and about how I approach my work now. Like I'm just as likely to publish in a blog as I am an article nowadays, you know. And I, I've kind of uh, picked up this thing of a nomadological perspective, which is a concept that I'm taking from Deleuze and uh, Deleuze and Guattari. Their book Capitalism and Schizophrenia is really influential to me, and that's why it's the first thing that I reference in my book Shadows of the Prophet because. I just think that that was a, a really groundbreaking work for my part. And this idea of nomadology, I really like it. And I think it can work in sort of three ways. It can work in terms of an ontology, what you're studying. So you could be studying whatever martial art it could be, uh, silat or capoeira or, or, you know, there's so many. Uh, in my case, so I've done uh, uh, Charles Family Praying Mantis. I also looked at uh, Hong Sang Cholifut in Singapore. I learned uh, Jing Wu in Singapore, which was comprised of four different arts, uh, Eagle Claw, uh, Shaolin, um, uh, Tai Chi, and uh, Northern Praying Mantis, Chatsing, Tanglang. Um, so I did that as well. And I did uh, Bagwajang in uh, Singapore as well, because I was there for nine years, and uh, as well as about 11 or 12 styles of Silat. 
Um, so if this idea of nomadology is really like not being tied down to any one style. Like right now I'm doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Guam because it's just Guam, it's a place to do it. But uh, so in some way, in, in terms of ontology, it's not being tied down to style, but it's also not being tied down to any particular uh, way of, of looking at a style as well. I, I'm perfectly aware that some of you are writing about literature, some of you are looking at film, some of you are doing, looking at theatre. So we can also look at, uh, I guess, representations as well, it can be part of that uh, nomadological ontology for martial arts studies. And then just to sort of go towards epistemology, I, th I think also we can be epistemologically uh, uh, kind of nomads as well. Like just, and this is really, all of this is really drawing from Bruce Lee's idea of absorb what is useful, you know? If it's useful, just use it, you know? So um, I think in terms of the epistemology as well, this uh, nomological perspective applies. And even in terms of the methodology too. So how are you gonna work from this? Um, uh, for me, this, this, this seems to, to just tie it up altogether. Otherwise, it just seems like a load of loose ends, but yeah. So I've got some prior form in more ways than one, I guess. And uh, um, the, the Silat Malayu study that I did, Shadows of the Prophet, it was really tricky. Um, they were uh, the Naqshbandi Sufi Tariqat, which is a, a, a Sufi order of mystics. And they, they were the mystics for the rural families of Southeast Asia. So for my case, just coming from working class builders background, uh, it was really like kind of working, interviewing up, doing ethnography up, all these uh, millionaire people. And I learned um, uh, Silat in England first from um, a bodyguard, or Ulubalang, for uh, Raja Ashman, who's uh, unfortunately passed away just a couple of years ago. Um, but, uh, and I remember asking him uh, if I could have permission to, to do this study, and he, he gave me permission to do it. And he said the most important thing actually in, in, in this, all of this is respect. And it was, it was quite tricky to write Shadows of the Prophet because on the one side, clearly they're what in the West would be defined as, as a cult. That is an Islamic deviationist cult. And they would be defined pretty much as a cult in Malaysia too and within Southeast Asia if they weren't so powerful and if they weren't the tariqat, the order of the, of the uh, royal family, you know, because nobody can call them a cult because they're just too powerful to get called that. They can just do what they want. So it ended up being a, a kind of double study. It was a study of, on the one side, Silat as a martial art, but it was also a study of, of the Hakani. And I, I kind of play with that theme right the way through the book, um, as it's broken up into these different sections of doubles and echoes and shadows and reflections. And so I, I constantly wanted to reflect back and to, 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 to look at the kind of echoes in, of tradition in modernity and modernity reinventing tradition, for example, uh, that Hobbesborn thing, but also to, to look at uh, the classical traditional sociology uh, and anthropology, which was kind of obsessed with this idea of shadows. And um, if, if you read early uh, Tyler or if you read Herbert Spencer, there's all kinds of uh, material on, on how uh, native people supposedly lived in this kind of dream sort of shadow world and that that was real to them as well. So it was kind of like, to me, that's a hundred years on, of course, nobody in anthropology professes that or believes that. But at the same time, it was there in anthropology and it was kind of, it was an understanding that they, that they took to the world. And one thing, I guess, with anthropology, salvage anthropology is not popular anymore. You know, the idea of going around and salvaging things from different cultures. But I think salvage as a concept could actually be applied to anthropology and we can still salvage things that are useful from the uh, earlier uh, anthropologists. And that was one of the things that I wanted to do with this shadows, reflections, doubles, and echoes. So that, that, was, that was the Shadows of the Prophet. And that took me a decade to do. And at the end of it, I got kind of fed up. There was, uh, I got fed up. There was too many arguments. There was too many fights that are between the, the group and the, the Guru Silat. And there was just way too much sorcery. And it started to give me the creeps, to be honest. And so uh, I was living in Singapore. I finished my PhD in 2005, effectively written it up, had to wait a year and a half for the bureaucrats to market and deal with it. Some people in bullshit jobs, as Grebe would call them. <laughs> and then, uh, uh, so I, I, one day I saw this uh, little old guy in the park and he was jumping around and uh, he was in his 70s, but he was so fit and he was using all these weapons and stuff. And I thought, I'd like to be like that when I'm old. That looks great. And so what I did was I embarked on another ethnographic study for 30 months. And I, I 
I, I train with this guy uh, for 30 months, usually, usually five hours a day, every day. So I put in about 35 hours a week training, and then I put in about uh, maybe two hours a day writing on top of that, writing the field notes, plus socializing with them and stuff like that. So it becomes like it's really full time, it's full on. You end up working 60, 70 hours a week on average. It's just normal. Yeah. Um, but before I did any of this, and I guess to contextualize it, um, I'd done Southern Praying Mantis. So I was a martial artist who became an anthropologist. I was an anthropologist who became a martial artist. I already had my black belt down in Southern Praying Mantis. I trained in that style. I used to train five hours a day. I did that for eight years. Um, you know, the, the, the doll was pretty useful in England back in the, back in the 80s, you know? And uh, yeah, and so I wanted to write something about that. And uh, that, that, that came out a couple of years ago, uh, Becoming Animal in the Chinese martial arts. And uh, it's, it came out in a Berg book. And that really relates to the story of, of Southern Praying Mantis as, as I see it. And I went back to relearn this whole style in Hong Kong. I, although I had a black belt in it from England, I went back to relearn it in Hong Kong. And I've been going to Hong Kong every year. For, I go for a few weeks at a time and just relearn it. And it's the, the way I've learned it is really different. So um, this is just you know, giving some form. And then methods, for my work, I use a lot of methods. I'm really influenced by visual anthropology, like ideas about filming and reflexivity and photography, of course, with participant observation and generating field notes uh, and in-depth interviews. And for those of you who are just sort of thinking about embarking on a study like this, or we've already done it, I, I, I've done, I guess, in terms of ethnographies now, I'm on my fifth one. But by the time I got to my third one, I, I realized, oh, really, you should show, not tell when you write your notes, you know? And it gets easier, honestly. As, as, you, as you do more ethnographies, it does get easier. And it got to a point where I started to write the field notes as almost like a finished book, like it was done. There's not, not, nothing more that you just have to add to it, yeah. So you get to a point where you can just get it done. And of course, case studies, life histories, anthropology of experience comes in. And I've done work in Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, China, Hong Kong, Yap, and Guam. So this is, you know, really, uh, I'm really interested in this idea of a community-based collaborative research. And uh, I, I take this really seriously. I, I work with uh, the Jingwu Athletic Association. I'm a member of them in Malaysia. And uh, the, the way Jingwu are, they, they see themselves as actually investigating martial arts. So um, I think they're a fascinating organization. On, on the one side here, we have Yongfeng. And uh, he, was, he acted as my translator to some degree, because some, sometimes it was just too difficult because of the, the so many different dialects. You know, I was dealing with Hakka, dealing with Hokkien, dealing with Teochew. It's, it's just got too complicated. I mean, basically, I could speak to people in Chinese and I could speak to them in Malay, you know, good enough for like the coffee shop and just general interaction. But in terms of like really specialist definitions of, of terms, it, it, I needed help, of course. So Yongfeng was the person who helped me. And this other guy here is Akin. And he's a Southern Praimantis uh, uh, master practitioner uh, who's now a, a, a kind of uh, works in traditional uh, Chinese medicine. And they're looking at that uh, now defunct journal of uh, Asian martial arts, sadly. And um, they're looking at a, an old article on, on Southern Mantis. And they're trying to work out the translation of Chu and, and Chow. And is Chow different from Chu? Is Chu different from, from Chow? Was it to do with the move from China to Hong Kong? Or was it uh, a, a mistranslation of, of Hakkanese into Cantonese? Because So it gets really quite tricky. Once it moves from Hakka to Cantonese and then it moves into English, then a lot of things get misplaced you know, along the way. Um, and there's a lot of argument about that. So this is one of the things that I just literally got a grant just to sort that particular thing out. That's what I wanted to do. Right now, my current projects are, if, if you're going to be a, a writer and you're serious about it, you've got to have to have you've got to be finishing something, you've got to be in the middle of something, and you've got to be starting something. So the, the thing I'm starting is, uh, is uh, I'm looking, thinking about Yap and Yappy's stick dance, which is, uh, there was a Yappy's martial art called Buang, or Bung. Yap is in Micronesia, which is uh, in the Pacific. And I'm quite interested in that, and I've gone to have a look at that in Yap. So I'm thinking about doing something on that next. And currently I'm working on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Guam, um, I'm looking at issues of homicide, uh, habitus, and police, and criminals. 
um, and we'll talk about this a bit more in the talk. And I'm also looking at uh, Singapore Kuntao uh, or Chole Foot, and this is uh, a study on secret societies, false connections, captivation, and apparatus of capture. And um, that's almost done. I was going to publish it really soon, actually, but I held off on that one because Lee Kuan Yew just died. And I just thought it wouldn't be very polite to be talking about that right now. And uh, you'll see why when it comes out. But just to show you a map, um, where Guam is. Guam's just here. And this is Yap over here. And you can see it's, 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 it takes four and a half hours to get to Seoul and maybe four hours to get to um, Hong Kong. So it's like 2,100 miles to, to get to Seoul from here. Um, and that's where I work now. And I've been there for the last eight years. I was in Singapore for nine years before that. But today, one of the things I wanted to talk about, and I, I don't want to get too bogged down in this because it gets really technical, but it's the infinity loop model. And it comes from uh, Schechner's work, Richard Schechner. And he, he did this with um, Victor Turner. And it was very much the idea of the anthropology of performance coming together with performance studies as a, as a new discipline uh, created from Schechner theatre on the one side and on the other side, uh, Victor Turner uh, anthropology. And they, they came up with this idea about how uh, 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 social drama, if you like, uh, would, could feed back into uh, um, uh, theatre and how theatre itself could feed back into, if you like, real life. So um, there are many ways to explain this, and I'm going to look at it a, a, bit, a bit in a minute with the Silat example. Now, just to get some basic definitions down, efficacy uh, is to get something done. Effectiveness, if you like. Uh, entertainment is to give pleasure to an audience. Now, you probably could pick these definitions apart, but you know they seem to be good enough for my purposes here. Um, Basically, every, every performance has aspects of efficacy and, and entertainment. They have both, all right? But my question was, what happens if efficacy and entertainment become confused? What happens if you mix up what's basically entertainment with what's basically efficacy, you know? So that was my question. And it leads to this idea of like, I, it, for me, it's a problem that I've been trying to look at, which is this notion of false connections. And um, before I did a PhD in anthropology, I was doing a PhD in psychoanalysis um, at Middlesex University. So I was, I was just about to embark on my PhD and I spent two years preparing for it. And then I, 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 uh, I didn't get funded. So I, I went to Singapore instead and I worked there for three years and I got funded to do anthropology instead. So basically I jumped ship from, from psychoanalysis. But there are some really interesting concepts from psychoanalysis that I still you know, would like to work with. And one of them is this idea of false connections, which was when um, somebody's under hypnosis, um, that somebody's under hypnosis and, and you, they're given an instruction, for example, that there's a, a, a table in the middle of an empty room. Right? There's a huge table in the middle of this empty room and then they're woken up out of the hypnosis and then they're asked to cross the room to go and get something. And what they do is they skirt all the way around the edge of the room, they get something and then they come back again. And then... The, the hypnotizer says to them, well, why did you go around the edge of the room? You know? And they say, well, I don't know, you know, it was, it's cold, and I wanted to be near the radiator, you know, so I could stay warm, or something like that. So they, they'd basically be like a cross wire, where they come up with some, some reason that wasn't the real reason, if you like. They come up with some reason, this false connection, that, that sort of uh, displaced... Uh, uh, the real reason for what they were doing. So I was quite fascinated with this idea of false connections about how people could kind of make these kind of cognitive mistakes, if you like. And uh, um, I wanted to look at this efficacy in entertainment. Once these ideas or variables, if you want, once they become <coughs> confounded, then, um, then maybe that leads to this idea of some kind of false connection. And you'll, you'll see in a minute what I'm going to talk about with that. But just to get through a bit more of the theory... Another way to talk about this in anthropology would be to talk about captivation. And this comes from Alfred Jarl's uh, book on art and agency. Um, and he talks about uh, entrapment and how agency could be entrapped or how an object or an artwork could exert some kind of agency to ensnare the viewer in a cognitive trap. And I've, I've written about this in the, the healing arts of the uh, Malay mystic, about how uh, paintings supposedly could spring into life to defend people when they come under some kind of spiritual attack. 
Um, and to me, to my mind, this is very much like, reminds me of Hegel and this, this idea of like kind of embodiment of spirit. And so I'm kind of suspicious about the term embodiment. I really didn't want the book to be called Martial Arts as Embodied Knowledge. It just ended up like that. But I'm really suspicious of embodiment because what's being embodied? Is it some kind of spirit? And then what do we mean by spirit? You know, it just causes more problems than it really solves. Um, and so I'm wondering if, if embodiment and agency are kind of like emic attributions, right? Rather than kind of like, it, it's, it's, if you like, it's, 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 it's an emic attribution. It's something that's, that's, that's come from the, the field, from what, how people are regarding, um, they're regarding perhaps agency as being embodied in a thing. And then that's being developed into some kind of grounding, grounded theory. And that's leading to some kind of academic false connection. I don't know if that, does that make any sense? Yeah? So I'm thinking there's false connections. I'm not just saying that people can have false connections out there. I'm saying these academics can have these false connections as well. And that one of the false connections could be this idea of embodiment. And the other false connection could be the idea of agency. Now, this is Tim Ingold, because Tim Ingold is attacking agency and he's attacking embodiment. He says the agency is magical mind dust and we should just forget about it. This is rubbish, especially the idea that agency could be embodied in a thing. You know, what we, what we need is not a theory of things, we need a theory of life, right? Um, and the same idea of embodiment, the idea that you've got some sort of something spiritually encapsulated within you is also nonsensical because basically we're, we're, we're active within the world, creating and making the world with our every move and word and the things that we're doing and the way that we're connected together. So he really dismisses this kind of agency and embodiment. And I find that quite fascinating because on the one side of me, I'm really tempted to, to kind of agree with him. But on the other side, you know, I, th I think the only people who kind of really can think that agency uh, doesn't exist and really have such a cynical uh, idea about agency is people who've never had it stripped from them. If you've had your agency stripped from you, then you know all about it, really. If you've been in a total institution, like in a prison or a mental hospital or something like that, then you're going to start thinking, actually, agency's real and structure's real too. And so I think with the, the idea of an anthropology of performance, on the one side, yes, we can draw from Turner and we can draw from... Uh, Richard Schechner, but also I think it's still important to maintain that route with Goffman, with Irving Goffman and, and his, his, his ideas. So this is where I'm going with that. This is uh, Ung Sifu, Ung Gim Han. Uh, he was the guy I spent 30 months with training in, in Singapore. And mostly, mostly with this kind of jingwu is theatre. They, they're training opera performers. It's not effective in terms of being a martial art. It's, it's problematic. There was one of the people who trained with him for many years, and he, I, I came out of Southern Prayer Mantis, and Southern Prayer Mantis, if nothing else, they teach you how to fight. And uh, it was in the East End of London where I, where I learned how to do this, you know? And uh, um, one of his students challenged me outside a community club, and he got really, really rough. And uh, I wasn't gonna put up with it, so I just flattened him. I did this technique called the face, where you just grab their face and smash them into the floor. And I flattened him, this guy. And then my, my, my friend, Yong Fong, comes up to me. He goes, oh, no, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. And I said, why not? He attacked me. And he said, no, 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 you made him lose face. And I'm like, what? He said, yeah, you made him lose face. Uh, so, OK. So this, this, was, this was, if you like, the martial arts being practiced for theater. It's for entertainment. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have some kind of efficacy. It does. They have, like, these big wooden balls about this big. And for the life of me, I tried getting on this ball and running around on it, but I couldn't do it, yeah? But then you see these kids, the Chinese kids, they jump on these balls and they run around on this ball, and the ball wheels around. It's just way better than skateboarding, yeah. But this is like entertainment. He would tell me himself, this is not about fighting. This is about staying fit. It's about getting old gracefully. It's about being able to do a jumping spinning kick when you're in your 60s, you know? On the other hand, this, this man here, this Sifu, Lee Tin Loy in Hong Kong. He was a former policeman who's retired. For, for Lee Tin Loy, it's all about, it's all about efficacy. It's about being able to kill with your fingertips. This guy is incredibly powerful. The power that he's uh, developed through his training. Uh, he's a very small person, but he can, he's, he's got this strange kind of abilities and powers. Um, his teacher um, also had some very, uh, strange uh, attributes, like his neck would just go straight down and he could knock on his neck and it sounded like plastic. You can't pull any skin off his hand, off his arms. 
It's like just the incredible bodily transformations that take place through this particular set of training. So this is, these guys would argue there's very little theatre in what they're doing, that it's just totally practical. And they'd, they'd get really upset if you told them it was anything to do with entertainment. And then this is, this is Yapi's stick dance, which I was privileged to go and see in Yap, in Micronesia. And um, when I was there, reading all the literature on, on Bung, it says that it disappeared in the 1940s, that it's, that it's gone. That Bung doesn't exist. There's no Bung. No, you can't find it. You can't see it. And so I went and stayed in the Falu, which is the men's house, for three days. I took a few bottles of whiskey with me because the guys like to drink. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, we, we sat in this fallu, and uh, the, the, this little old man came into the fallu, and he'd had a stroke, so he said he couldn't drink very much, but he polished off an entire bottle of whiskey. And uh, he sat there, and we were, we were uh, uh, just talking, and he started to, uh, he asked me what I was interested in, and I said I was interested in bong. And he said, really? And he said, well, it doesn't exist, you know, it's gone. That Everybody knew it died, you know? And I said, well, I don't believe you. And he said, well, why don't you believe me? And I said, well, because I saw the yappy stick dance. And to me, it's bloody obvious. It's right there. I mean, look at the definition on this guy's back. Look at the size of these poles. This is heavy. This is, a, this is serious training, men and women. Yeah? You, you, you slip with this stick, you're going to break your fingers. It's not easy. And there's many different dances for many different villages. And it's, it's entertaining. It's very entertaining. And of course, but it's also... It's the efficacy has been hidden inside the entertainment, you know. So this is what they've done, and it's quite fascinating. So anyway, so I was sitting in this men's house with this with this guy, and he's drinking all this whiskey, and I'm having a couple of beers. And then I said, well, I saw some of the movements, and I said, I know I know you have the movements because I'm a martial artist, so I, I know you can do this. For example, and he said, yes, you can do this. But he said he said to me, but can you do this? And I said, yeah, I can do this. And then we went through a hundred different movements, one after the other just pattern movements. And so he just showed me this martial art actually does exist. It's just that they just hide it. They don't want to talk about it. It's really quite interesting. So I'm wondering whether to write about this or not, actually. Maybe you guys can tell me what you think. So anyway, so this study I did before, Sunny Salahak Malayu, it had all this stuff about breaking the ego. It was, an, it was a Muslim cult. So the idea of breaking the ego is, is, is that you've, you've really got to conquer the animal within. And you've got to overcome yourself, okay? And the way they would do that was with a 40-day seclusion. It's normally in Islam, it's done as an individual thing called a kolwa. But the way they did it was collective. So they would, take, they would take a group of people and they would isolate them for 40 days. And you would live according to the rules of the camp. And there was all this kind of verbal mortification. Um, and the, it was brutal. The, it was, the, the people were treated brutally. Like It was like Bolshoi ballet training or something like that. And... Uh, but the thing is, there was this kind of uh, misdirection that was mixed in as well. And I'm wondering if this was a kind of psycho-callousing. So, you know, this, this idea of callousing is quite interesting that I've been reading about recently. So um, here what we see is ritual ordeals on the one side, which is kind of efficacy for Schechner, and on the other side, theatre training, which is entertainment, and how these two are intertwined again within a martial art. Um, this is a picture of the camp. This is the Guru Silat here with the glasses on, and then the guy sitting down on the floor, squat, uh, with his cross-legged, and also with shades on, he's Sadiq. So you hear the Guru Salats, they're, they're eat, he's eating lamb's, lamb soup because it was a favourite of the Prophet. So no, you can no good being a vegetarian there. So he says, the Guru Salat says to him, eat slowly, eat slowly, chew your food. There, why did you drop it down yourself? Don't touch the food until you swallowed what is in your mouth. This is the kind of thing. So just constantly picking on people, every last little thing, the way you eat, down to every last aspect of your behaviour is going to be criticised. That's the mortification. But the misdirection part of it is, is the Guru Salat criticising you or is the Guru Salat criticising somebody, somebody else through you? Right? Because their ego is not big enough to take it. So therefore, they criticise somebody else. They're, they're criticising you to criticise somebody else through you. So this idea of misdirection. So nobody knew who the hell was getting criticised. And nobody knew who he was really talking to. Is he talking to me? No, of course he's not talking to me. He's not telling me off because he's telling somebody off, else off through me. 
So it was like a hall of mirrors, hence reflections and echoes and doubles and all this kind of stuff. So um, it ended up uh, going to this theatre and they, they, they run a theatre play in England. And the Guru Salat said, There's, they're not going to have any English students that are going to be part of this. We are only going to use students from Malaysia. So he went to Malaysia, set up this uh, theatre training thing and brought these uh, Malay uh, people back to England to run a show called Silat Dance of the Warriors. And it's a one hour show. And in the show, what happens is people run around with machetes, clash, 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 clash. Um, this constant martial arts battle goes on to, to show uh, Silat, uh, to display it. And at the end of it, the Guru Silat sits and he he's, sits on this big purple cushion like, a, like, like the prince. And he has the two warring factions come up to him and it's healed. And so my, my rendition of this was that it's the... Um, it's a kind of wish fulfillment. It's a wish fulfillment of, of, of breaking all these egos, of breaking all these students, of having all the students leave and then having new students come in and then they all get broken in their process. This ego breaking thing, he keeps breaking all his students. So this, this was a kind of wish fulfillment. So this is how I use the infinity loop model in my work, yeah, with efficacy and entertainment, right? And here, one of the things they do is they dip their hands into boiling oil. <coughs> I've, I've done this four times myself. This time was really hot. This was in Malacca. And these girls put their hands in that oil. And I came up with this idea of acculturation from this. And acculturation is defined as the attribution of sacred or mystical power to secret or esoteric skills. Yeah, it's a bit like fishing. You know, <laughs> if you know the water and you know what time the fish come out and you know uh, the tide and you know uh, the reef, then you can say where the fish are going to be and what time, but it seems magical to anybody who doesn't you know, know how to do this. Right? And often it is set up as magic, but what it really is, it's a set of esoteric skills. And so this, what I'm talking about as a culturation is a cult attribution where esoteric skills are framed as magic. And so theatre for some might be framed as ritual for others and vice versa. And one woman's black magic may be another, another's religiosity. So this, this then, this also, links into this idea of this infinity loop model where you've got uh, sacred and mystical power on the one side and esoteric skills on the other and it's a way of hiding or reveal revealing which is kind of integral I think to an understanding of martial arts. Okay so that was the first study. So the second study and there's going to talk about three the second one is the Singapore Kuntao. Kuntao is, uh, is a Hokkien word for head fist just loosely and it's uh, Hong Sing Choli Fut is a, 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 a group in Singapore, in Singapore's red light district in Geylang. And they have 14 streets that's just prostitution legalised in Singapore. Um, and it's kind of a long arm swinging training method where they have all this like really huge swinging of the arms. Um, but it uses a lot of the leopard insignia. They have leopard trousers, they have uh, leopard fists that, that they use. Um, and somehow they, they're definitely a secret society. They're famous. They're a famous secret society. Uh, another word for secret society, of course, is triad. Um, uh, it's a, they told me. Somebody told me this is a great style. If, if you need, you know, if you're going to go to prison, this is the style you want to know, because you can learn this style in three months. No need to go and learn for 20 years Tai Chi. You know, forget about it. You could learn this for three months and you can kill people with your fist. You know. So this was the, this was the mentality that they had uh, for this uh, Singapore Kuntao. And of course, the long arm swinging just got totally thrown out of the window. That was kind of the entertainment part of it. But the efficacy was, was really just this strike with the, with the leopard fist. Um, and I think it's really kind of problematic um, how the martial arts changed. Because a lot of the traditional method of training the art, like for example, they would, do, they would take two stools, like this here and here. And they would place their fingers on the stool and then really wide, and then they would do these press-ups on this stool with the whole body going down through it. But the teacher said to me, nobody does this anymore. And I said, why not? And he says, oh, it's too much like hard work. Nobody wants to do this anymore. You know, so, so they don't train, you know, the, the method is kind of lost, sadly. This is Chia Sufu when he's young. Very precise, brilliant footwork. This was a video that I was going to show you, but it doesn't matter. It's not going to work. And he said to me one time, do you know how to dance? And he do you know how to dance the cha-cha-cha. And it was really amazing because it was this cha-cha-cha and he would just use this step and he would turn sideways and then pop. And he was really, really good at this precision movement. He was really lethal, this guy. 
Um, and the thing about Charlie Foot that I thought was really interesting was this withholding and revealing. Like he would show you, he would teach you another step and another form, but they would hold, withhold the, the, the meaning behind it. Or they wouldn't show you the application. Or they wouldn't show you the next form until you attained a certain stage. So this is part of the learning in Kung Fu. And um, there's a kind of waist twisting with doubling the maneuvers. Like, you know, I always teach my students actually that this really simple maneuver is really effective because you've got an elbow, a back fit, you, you know, you've got four blows in just turning your waist. So um, he'd gone beyond kind of this slavish reproduction of forms himself and he created his own, basically his own style of what is now recognized as Chole Foot. But, you know, for me, my part, I really wanted to look at this idea of false connections with this because the meanings of the movement, was one of the movements that he showed me, he showed me this technique, okay, I've been doing martial arts for more than, okay, I've been doing martial arts for 40 years. Okay, so I've seen a lot of stuff over my time. And this guy, he showed me one of the techniques and he showed this very fancy kicking application to it. And I said, no, 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 that's not what it's for. And I showed him what it's for. And it, what it's actually for, this, this technique, was to, is to knee somebody in the stomach and then grab them as they're coming down and smash their head on the floor. That, that's actually what it's for. But, and when I showed him the technique, I could see his eyes kind of, his eyes widened and he looked at me like semi-furious and semi-kind of pleased. Um, hard to tell, it's hard to read the look, you know. Um, to me, this really obvious application of that move. And then if you cross-train, you can see moves from outside. And, but in his style, traitors are outcast. So the, 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 the issue became really like, why is this thing sort of dressed up in a fake application? Why are they teaching this move with the wrong application when the real application is so good and yet they've hidden it and they've hidden it so well that even they've forgotten it, you know? So this is, this is captivation. It's being captured in this logic of, of something that's, 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 you know, I don't want to say fake, but it's being captured in this logic of something that's, 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 that's not what the application of the technique really is, I think, you know, in terms of efficacy. For great for entertainment, but in terms of efficacy, you know, it's got to be Occam's razor. Occam's razor, you know, it's got the simplest explanation is going to be the one, you know. Uh, so this is what I apply to it, and and to me in Singapore, this whole idea of captivation ultimately leads to the whole logic of the state in Singapore. Like the Singaporeans really, they like the state, you know, they like Lee Kuan Yew, and you see all the people out crying, pouring of crying, and people getting upset with Lee Kuan Yew dying. Okay, you know, it's like there was one or two people who got upset and did some stuff on YouTube and ended up getting jailed. But, uh, you know, it's like really it's the, the mass majority of Singaporeans supported the state and they supported, they seem to support Lee Kuan Yew. So this idea of captivation then is, I, I think is really interesting. You know, how people can sort of be suckers for the state. This is the Xing Yi uh, performance in Singapore for the lion dance. Okay, so the, the final stage here thanks for bearing with me, is um, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which um, I'm, I live on Guam, and, uh, you know, when in Rome, you know, uh, no, no point teaching them Southern Prey Madness in Guam, nobody's interested. One, it's Chinese, and, you know, they, Chinese stuff on Guam, they're not interested. They're interested in Japanese things, for sure, but Chinese, no, sorry, nobody wants to know. So it's just wrong place for the kind of martial art. That's, that's you know, I, I tried teaching Southern Prey Mantis there, just nobody seemed interested. I had a few people who learned for a while and then Southern Prey Mantis, you really got to eat bitter a lot, you know? You've got to deal with loads of bruises and it's hardcore. And uh, people come in, maybe they train a year, six months, and then they go. So for me, it's like a kind of a waste of time to teach people like that, I don't like that. Either they're in or they're not in, you know? But with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, um, I find it quite ironic that it's defined as the gentle way, you know, jiu-jitsu. Um, and it's a martial art that excuse striking, kicking and punching. So they get really upset with me sometimes because, you know, rolling around on the floor and suddenly I'll just fire a volley of kicks at them and they'll be like, oh no, you're not allowed to do that. I'm like, sorry. So I, tr I really try to sort of phenomenologically bracket off other martial arts and keep them away when I'm doing a, a field work. I've been learning this now for about eight months. Um, and it was a steep learning curve. It's totally different. Instead of kicking, punching, striking, you seize, pull, drag the opponent to the floor. You attain a dominant position. You have to pass the guard. And there are various different guards that you've got. Um, and there, there's the mount, 
which is famous. I think everybody knows what the mount is. There's also a side version of it. There's the north-south version of it, which is also called the tea bag. Somebody once told me that I was homophobic for mentioning the tea bag in a, in a, in a, in a paper on Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I think it's quite ridiculous. You can't be homophobic and do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I just don't think it's going to happen. You know? it's, just, it's just not going to happen. Because you know? basically you're just rolling around on the floor on top of each other. You know? and, and what do you want? You know? so, and most of the submissions are done through uh, arm bars and they're done through uh, choke holds. Um, I've got a really busted right arm from, from doing this training, actually. And it's, I, call it, I call it the 671 field site. Guam 671, because it's the name of the road. It's a US territory, so it's part of the US, but it's thousands and thousands of miles away from California, but it's still part of America somehow. Um, it's the biggest American military base in the Pacific. It's, uh, you know, you see bombers every day. It's a great place to do aircraft watching. Um, the gym I train at is called Spike 22. It's named after the Melkor Manabusin's dog, his pit bull that died. Um, it's become quite a famous gym. They, they, uh, at first they were training this group called Fokai that came out of there. And then the, the guys who were learning that, the mixed martial arts, they started applying it on the street. It got a bit of a bad reputation. And so uh, uh, they kind of separated a little bit and other gyms have, have arisen from this Spike 22. Um, it's now trained at, uh, by SWAT, the captain of the SWAT, the head of the SWAT team trains there, by Guam Police Department. Uh, you get police from immigration, police from customs, people from the CIA, you get people from the FBI, you get National Guard, Air Force, of course the indigenous Chamorro and some Filipino, Korean, and people from the Japanese diaspora, you know, these people that live on Guam. And you get the professional foreign and local MMA fighters, wrestlers, and you get amateur and professional competitors and prize fighters, you come in all the time. So it's constant flow of bodies coming through this gym. It's a busy, really busy gym. Um, and, if, and in the morning at seven o'clock or six o'clock or whenever they get there, sometimes really early, you have this gray beard or old man jiu-jitsu. And that's, that's what I've been doing. And it's very much like the kind of backyard training. Guam Police Department. I think this tells you everything. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of really deceptive, isn't it? You know, a lovely picture of the palm tree and the boat and the beach and then GPD, I'd rather be choking you out, yeah, than, than on the beach. And here's some pictures of jiu-jitsu. And, you know, the becoming animal thing, I sort of flirted with using it for this as well. And Dan showed me a move and he talks about, uh, I move my whole body like a snake and they use snake as a verb, snake tin, snake to cross and talk about turtles and dogs and stuff. But really it doesn't kind of make much interest in me to be honest, talking about becoming animal in jiu-jitsu when five murderers have trained at Spike. You know, when people tell you stuff like that, you start thinking, okay, so what am I going to do with this? <laughs> so um, I'll get to that in a minute. So cauliflower culture is the name of the brand that they're promoting at Spike 22 right now. And if you, if you use Twitter or you're on Facebook, you can look at cauliflower culture and that'll come up. Uh, it's really a fighter's thing. Cauliflower ear is one of the perils of proximity. Basically, you get these big, lumpy, massive cauliflower ears. Um, if you're not injured after one year of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you're dead. Um, there's, uh, basically, there's all these brands that are emerging, Fokai, Purebred, Cauliflower Culture. And to some degree, it is some kind of celebration of violence and some celebration of masculinity. But there is a logic of submission that's built into it because you can tap out in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know? If someone puts you in a lock and they choke you out, you can tap out. And then by tapping, they should let you go, you know? Mm. This is training spike. This guy here is, wow. That's Manny Chong on top there. Manny Chong gets hold of you. Oh my God, it's hard to get him off. He's a professional MMA fighter. He's also a policeman. Um, brilliant person to train with, really uh, generous and teach you many different things, you know. And the, the PCS, position control submission, is what uh, Jiu-Jitsu is about. Getting position and then you can take control and then you submit the person. And you work for each one. It, takes, it can take time. Um, this is a rear naked choke. See some females training as well. And just train with the guys. Now, this idea of habitus from Waquant, um, I don't know, I, I, I'm kind of uneasy with it in some ways. Um, 
with Levi Strauss and the way of the mask, this book really influenced me. Um, and he talks about how transformation sets occur with masks. Like you'll find um, one tribe will have one myth and another tribe will have another myth that's kind of opposite, but they'll have the same mask. Or you'll have two tribes where a mask is, you'll have one mask with big lips and a big nose and big eyes, and another mask with, where, where everything's been inverted, and yet the myth stays the same. So, so the myth stays the same and the masks are different, or the mask stays the same and the myth's inverted. That's the transformation set. So this idea really interested me, and I'm going to look at that in a minute with Shunga and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, and of course, there's some terms that come up with ethnography. You've always got to be really uh, listening to what people are saying. I, I really think it's very similar to psychoanalysis in some ways, because it really is the art of listening. You just have to sit there and just listen to what they say. I don't even like asking questions. I hardly ever ask questions in my research. I just listen to what people say and just let them tell me. Sooner or later, they will. There's a chapter in Fighting Scholars by uh, Brian Hugeven on uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It was quite interesting because he talks about habit rather than habitus. And uh, of course, this idea of habitus comes from Hexis, from Bourdieu, um, where uh, habitus was supposed to be embodied Hexis. But I, I think Wakwant does a fairly good job of dismissing that. And to be honest with you, it just ends up with being this word salad of theory, you know? And I, I just get to the point where, is this really useful? You know, is this helping us? I don't think so. I think it's putting the ethnographic cart before the horse. It's really more important just to, 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 to do the study on the ground and see what comes out from them. And then you can mess about with transformation sets. So, <laughs> yeah. Check it out. You know? Yeah, there's a PhD ready to be done there. Somebody could do that. You know? Yeah. Homicide. I don't see ankle locks or arm bars as that dangerous. It's going to be strictly chokeholds. This is the GPD person assigned to me. The Guam Police Department very kindly assigned an a, a investigator to me to help me to do my research. Um, this is really interesting because I managed to get the records from the police department from people who've been killed with rear naked chokes and I could look through the autopsy. Um, Carl Gargarita killed Anthony uh, Girilau on the June the 14th, 2013, using a rear naked choke. Apparently the guy tapped out, but he didn't, the tapping, he didn't stop, because even though he was tapping, he thought it wasn't safe to let him go, so he ended up killing him. Um, Eric Garner, as we know, was killed on July 17th, 2014, by New York PD, NYPD, um, using a rear naked choke, and it's very famous, but I can't breathe. You must have all seen that. Uh, as a kind of protest. And so homicide and rear naked chokes seem to be a really interesting thing to research from Spike. And here's the, the, the perpetrator of the crime uh, showing the rear naked choke on how he applied it on a prosecutor, on an attorney. So, okay, so I've got these three areas, all right? Right now, something I'm finishing, something I'm in the middle of, something I'm maybe about to begin. But at the same time, it seems in anthropology there's a paradigm shift occurring with the work of Ingold. Um, on the one side, he's challenging agency and throwing that out with the idea of animacy, that it's not looking at some kind of agent that's embodied in some flesh, but actually it's about how, uh, how things work in terms of, of life and how, how things work in terms of the environment. That we shouldn't be talking about how embodiment and being stuck in bodies, but we should be talking about movement. Uh, for my part, we shouldn't be talking about technology so much in martial arts studies, but about performance. Um, we're not talking about interacting, interacting or how people are, are, or interaction. We've moved on. We're talking about correspondence, how we correspond with not even informants anymore, interlocutors. The whole language of anthropology has changed. You know? It reinvents itself every 10 years. Um, instead of talking about representation or to, to represent people, we're talking about making. Instead of talking about studying of, we're talking about studying with. So anthropology then, it's shifted, it's changed, it's dynamic. And one of the things I want to emphasize about martial arts studies, because it's so interdisciplinary, and we've got um, all kinds of perspectives that have come into it, uh, from cultural studies, from sociology, from anthropology, from history, from literature, you name it, theater, right? The thing is, we have to keep up to date with what's happening in each other's disciplines. We can't allow it, we can't afford to slip. And that's, I think, one of the things with martial arts studies that we can excel at, 
is by being right up to date theoretically with all of the disciplines and then applying that to our particular set of studies. So in conclusion, I just want to say this, that anthropology has to move beyond endless discussions of embodiment, agency, habitus, and things as materials. It's just, it's just it's 1990s, you've just got to get over it. Um, what I'm going to say to you is that these are emic and not necessarily uh, etic attributions. Okay, it's an attribution. Agency is an attribution to some extent, but if you've had your agency taken away from you, you start thinking, well, maybe this isn't an attribution at all. You know? So it gets kind of complex because there's more than one way to define this. I think one way out of it is to renew a focus on efficacy and entertainment. Uh, we have to look at the emergence of cultural practice, practice via fine-grained ethnographic, ethnographic attention with community participation. So I really think that these particular studies, rather than say, oh, they've all been done or we've done enough of them, no. I, I really think we have to continue doing them because as the, as the environments keep changing, people keep changing, the community is changing. You know? And so if, if we're going to uh, have a lens on this at all, then we need to continue these studies and not say, oh, forget about ethnography. Uh, let's not bother with ethnography anymore. And we need to attend to a practical and applied symbiosis. We have to gain, what I mean by that is like, you can, it can be applied, you know, like you can gain access to the police, maybe to help to solve cold cases, or maybe you could get access to it to maybe help uh, to solve in injustice that's also been uh, perpetrated by the police on the other side of it, right? So there needs to be some kind of application of martial arts studies. It's, we're not just doing it for entertainment. We're not just doing it for the sake of it. You know, it's not just waffling theory, but there has to be some kind of practical uh, purpose behind the studies that we're doing. You know, what are we doing this for? Okay, so that's my talk. <laughs>